0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
2: Hello there and a happy Wednesday afternoon to you. Shortly taking a closer look at the waterlogging on farms in that Albany zone and it looks like, at this point anyway, it could reduce yields by around sort of 10 to 20% in some areas. Also, taking a look at some new research on feral pigs, which is showing they don't like to get out much, they don't roam around too much, they pretty much like to stay close to home when it comes to um, eating, breeding. And sleeping. You'll take a closer look at that shortly before the news headlines at half past 12 today. It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And some rather robust debate about a couple of agricultural issues in the Legislative Council at Parliament House in Perth yesterday. The opposition questioning the government about its commitment to developing three business cases for the Tier 3 grain lines here in WA. And the other hot topic of debate was about amendments to the Agricultural Produce Commission Act. Now, the APC allows producers to form committees and charge a fee for service which can then be used for a range of things like compensation in a natural disaster, controlling pests and diseases, some research maybe, and even to look at expanding markets. Up until now, it's mainly been used by the horticulture industry and broadacre and pastoral areas have been excluded. But under the amendments, as recommended by lobby group WA Farmers, broadacre will now be included with an opt-out clause. Shadow Minister for Small Business Steve Thomas is concerned the amendments are more about passing the buck than any real advantage for broadacre farmers.
3: This is an example of cost shifting from government to landowners and whilst it is supported by some using a user-pays argument, there remains a concern that the state is abrogating its responsibilities. The Legislative Council should consider whether extending the role of the APC is a genuine enhancement of services to agricultural industries to ensure that it is not a government cost-shifting exercise. The APC revenues across all agricultural industries in 2019-20 remember members was three point six six million dollars, um, generally at a one to one point five per cent of production. And the biggest contributors are the fruit industry with just under a million dollars, and the vegetable producers with three quarters of a million dollars. So we're looking at we're looking at modest but significant amounts of money being reinvested in industry. And I, look that, that was the intent of this Act when it was first introduced in the 1980s. And I think, and I think, it, I think it remains a good thing. I think it behoves us to be aware, however, that when you apply this to the bigger agricultural industries in Western Australia, and particularly the grains industry, the grains industry which is a bit, you know, it's the, it's the iron ore industry of agriculture in Western Australia, it has the potential to raise a massive amount of money. So this, this becomes important.
2: Shadow Minister for Small Business Steve Thomas in Parliament House yesterday. And this was the Agriculture Minister, Alanna McTiernan's, response.
4: I thank the members for their input. And I think that this is the most interesting debate because it sort of like almost distills all of the issues and problems that we have in agriculture in Western Australia, and not the least of which is the blue on green wars, which actually impede any reasonable problem. Now, I was astounded. I was astounded that members were opposite, were saying, well, you know, this review uh, came down in 2006 and golly gosh... Why are we only now dealing with uh, the recommendations of that review? Well, look over on that side of the House. During the eight and a half years that you were in government from 2008 to early 2017, you people that purport to represent the farmers, you weren't able to bring a piece of legislation forward. You weren't able to bring a piece of legislation forward either. On pastoral lands reform because you can't agree. Because right out there in the bush, there's this big fight that goes on between the PGA and WAF. And that big fight between PGA and WAF plays itself out time and time again.
2: And that debate over amendments to the Agricultural Produce Commission Act will continue this week, so stay tuned. Ten past twelve here on the Country Hour. Shadow Minister for Small Business Steve Thomas was also keen to get an update on the government's commitment to developing three business cases for the Tier 3 grain lines, for the reopening of those Tier 3 grain lines here in WA. And this was the Transport Minister Rita Safiotti's response.
5: One... (coughs) business case development is currently underway. Two, estimated costs for the respective tier three lines were released uh, in sep- on 24th of September 2020. These estimates will be refined through the business case process. Three, funding models will be determined following the business case process and negotiations with the Commonwealth. Four to five, business case development is currently underway.
2: Uh, they're the answers in Parliament yesterday, just a little of the debate around agricultural issues in the Upper House yesterday. 11 past 12. Well, that's state politics. Also a little bit interesting at the federal level because the nationals have split from their coalition partners over a plan some say would blow up the Murray-Darling Basin plan. National senators have abandoned their Liberal colleagues putting forward amendments to legislation that would effectively rewrite the plan and formally remove the target of getting an additional 450 gigalitres of water for the environment. Nikolai Bailhart spoke with Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan and began by asking if this significant change has anything to do with Barnaby Joyce reclaiming the leadership of the Nationals.
6: Look, it'd be a reasonable thing to think that this could be connected, to see the Nationals coming out so strongly and boldly against their Liberal coalitionist colleagues. I think the Libs would seriously be scratching their heads at the Nats this week over a couple of things, but I've just come from a media conference with Victorian Nationals MP Damien Drum, who very much made the point that this had been a long time coming. He said there was nothing to do with Barnaby Joyce's new leadership of the party, but this is something that he and other nationals, senators and MPs, had been seeking for some time.
7: And so what are the nationals proposing?
6: Well, they've stood up today. I'm not sure if you remember, Nikolai, that the government proposed the Inspector General for the Murray-Darling Basin. Remember the tough cop on the beach, mm. David Littleproud, in put Mick Kelty in that job and then when Keith Pitt came he announced that another Nat uh, Troy Grant would take on that role now it's been a long time legislating the powers for the Inspector General the legislation sailed through the House of Reps pretty much unscathed and many people had thought that it would do the same through the Senate today of course the opposition wasn't about to oppose it but the Nationals have, which is rather extraordinary when we think that the Water Minister, the person who actually drafted the bill in the first place, is Keith Pitt, and Nat. Now, I've just received a statement from him to say as a Cabinet Minister, he supports government legislation. But there are a group of Nats led by Bridget McKenzie, the Victorian National Senator of today. Put to the Senate changes to the legislation, basically saying it's time to once and for all rule out the 450 gigalitre water savings that would be returned to the environment. It wants to legislate that the Commonwealth will not go back into the market and buy back water rights from farmers. And it wants to be able to have the flexibility to look at new water savings projects to retrieve that 605 gigalitres, also saying that it wants to push out the deadline for that. I'm not sure if it was to 2026 and beyond. I'm, I might need to just go back and check. This is all sort of unfolding at the moment.
7: And for people, but maybe who aren't familiar with the plan, I mean, these are really significant, big changes that are being proposed, aren't they?
6: It's really interesting, Nikolai. On one hand, it's massive changes. There was such opposition from the South Australian senators, Rex Patrick. Sarah Hansen Young, Penny Wong, saying that you know Barnaby Joyce has declared war on South Australia with these amendments um, and war against the environment. But I think that there will be others, such as New South Wales Water Minister Melinda Pavey and Victorian Water Minister Lisa Neville, who said that they effectively ruled out the 450 gigalitres of water being returned when they installed the criteria for a socio-economic test uh, back at an agriculture. uh, Sorry, a Water Minister's meeting in December of 2018. I know this can seem like we're getting a little bit down in the weeds. Mm. It, it's a lot of legislation. It's, um, But this is really people's livelihoods that we are talking about. It's about access to water. It's about restoring the environment and sharing this resource, which we know is becoming much more precious by the day.
7: And so what happens from here?
6: I think that what will really happen is this will effectively go to committee in the Senate. Someone has suggested it's nothing but kicking the can down the road. The Liberals would never support it; they'd never get the legislation through the Parliament. But it certainly sends an incredibly strong signal to the Libs about how the Nats are feeling in this key agriculture and environment policy area. It's going to be interesting to see what the South Australian Liberal government has to say in response to to the Nats' moves. In fact, interesting to see what the Liberals make of this. I, I feel like they've had an extraordinary week. Um, losing the spotlight to the Nationals, you might say, and, and you could take the point, too, that Melinda pavian and Lisa, Lisa Neville have already done this. Keith Pitt, we know as Water Minister, has told us that it's nationals policy not to buy back any more water from farmers. And I asked Damien Drum if today's uh, antics in the Senate essentially proved that that promise wasn't worth the paper it was written on. And he replied by making the point that it's nationals policy, which is fine as long as the coalition is in government. But it's actually not legislated policy, hence the Nats making the move today to put an end to water buybacks and I just think it's really firing up as we head into a federal election. I spoke with the Labor water spokesperson Terry Butler who hasn't really had a lot to say on Murray Darling Basin policy. I think it's fair to say in her term in the job, certainly not like her predecessor Tony Burke did, but she's hinting that there will be policies to come from Labor in the lead-up to a federal election which must happen by May of next year and I think this just really points to things heating up.
2: Parliament House reporter, Kath Sullivan. And this is interesting timing on that long-running saga because here in Western Australia, well, we've got our own smaller version of the Murray-Darling Basin plan and it is called the Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme. A CSIRO report looking at the modelling behind the scheme was scheduled for release this week and that still may happen. What we understand is that WA's Minister for Agriculture, Alana McTiernan, and Minister for Water, Dave Kelly, have seen the report and they're expected to release it very soon, possibly tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe into next week. And I'm sure for those for and against the Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme, you are very keen to find out what is in that CSIRO report. They will also be keen to hear what the government decides to do with the findings. So will the scheme get the green light? Will it be tweaked a little bit? Will it be canned altogether? Maybe you'll find out tomorrow. It might be the next day. Anyway, stay tuned. 18 past 12. Hi, it's
5: Romina Nicoletti. I'm a farmer out at Bonnie Rock, and you are listening to The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on the ABC.
2: Great to have you along at 18 past 12. uh, News headlines along at half past 12, then off to the Bureau of Meteorology. And before that, looking at the feral pig situation, uh, particularly in the northern part of WA, northern part of Australia. This text has just come in too, no name on it. It says, please be specific when you refer to the South Coastal Zone re-the-water logging It's only the areas 20 kilometres off the coast that have flooding issues. The large rainfall amounts are concentrated in very concise, small pockets. Well, Anon, you might be surprised to hear that after all the recent rain, farmers as far north as the Great Eastern Highway are now seriously concerned about waterlogging. Michael Lamond is responsible for the monthly crop reports from the Grains Industry Association of WA. He says Sunday's storm exacerbated the problem on the south coast and ongoing waterlogging could reduce yields by 10 to 20 per cent in affected regions. So
8: the waterlogging is right through the West Albany port zone, the Great Sutton, through up early, all the way to um, the coastal areas. How much yeah.
7: might some of those farmers have to revise their estimates?
8: It, it may not be a lot. You know, it might be down ten percent. Depends because what can happen is see the they might have thirty percent of the paddock affected, but the other seventy is fine, and that in fact has probably benefited from the farm. It, it's unlikely we'll get the the real top end total tonnage. You know, the, the individual areas of can still yield quite well, but the average yield per paddock will be down. You know, it could be down. I don't know, ten, twenty percent, or even more, in some in the really bad areas.
2: Michael Lamond says you can expect a more thorough report on the storm damage and that waterlogging from Giwa in the next couple of weeks when the new report is released. He was speaking to Angus McIntosh, and there's more on the aftermath of Sunday night's storm online for you right now. It includes some images, those sheep in the tinny that was saved by, well, a few farmers were doing that, really, and also some personal stories of lost livestock and flooded farms. Just search Sheep Rain Albany ABC. Sheep Rain Albany ABC. 20 past 12. Well, some rain about in northern parts of the state too. Since Monday evening, some stations in the Pilbara and southern Kimberley have received as much as 50 millimetres of rain. David Stote owns Anna Station and says it's been a few years since they've had such significant rainfall in the dry season.
9: We uh, got about 28 mils here at Anna and um, did did dry off uh, at the end of the wet season but uh, this this will bring a bit of a green tinge back to it and um, the the Pilbara's uh, been getting quite a bit of winter rain I think but it's uh, finally managed to make its way up to the southern Kimberley so uh, we're very pleased with that. We tend to Get it about once every four or five years. and a sort of decent fall in, you know, May, June, July, that sort of period. So, um, yeah, I think it was about three or four years ago. So it's, it's not uh, completely uncommon, but it's um, – you certainly can't, can't rely on it and, um, yeah, it's not nice when it happens so you remember what rain's like.
10: Absolutely, and, and it has been a, a well-received season in terms of rain around the Pilbara and the Kimberley, hasn't it, after a couple of really pretty average wet seasons.
9: Yeah, I think I think ever in the north had had a season. Now it's certainly above average wet season in the Kimberley, and um, I think the, the Pilbara's been doing very well, and the and the Gascorn in the last few months. So and um, this is a, seem to be holding up as well. So that's uh, not too bad. I um, mean, it makes hard hard for uh, people trying to restock, but um, if you do have got a few stock on hand, it, um, it's certainly uh, certainly a, a good
2: time. David Stote, he's a pastoralist from Anna Plain Station, which is around about 250 kilometres south of Broome. 22 past 12. A research project using tracking collars to keep an eye on the movements of wild pigs in the northern agricultural region has revealed pigs like to stay close to home to eat, breed and sleep. Ma'ike Janssen is the Executive Officer of the Northern Biosecurity Group, which covers the shires of Northampton, Chapman Valley and the City of Geraldton. She's in charge of the Pig Collar Project, which is tracking 13 pigs. And the work is part of a bigger picture program to stem the impact of pig numbers in the Northern Agricultural Region. She says the pigs seem to have everything they need in a small area. It depends whether the pig is
10: a boar or a sow, but um, in general, the majority of the pigs are very happy where they live and they're not moving very far from where they've been caught. So there've been two pigs that would have been travelling around fair distance, probably maximum of fifteen to twenty kilometers from where the trap site was, but um, the majority have moved within. One, two, or five kilometre radius from their trap site. So it shows that pigs are happy in you know in this environment where they can sleep, feed,
11: and breed. Are you using cameras and that sort of thing to get some more insight into what what they're doing?
10: Yeah, when we first um, established a group, we put thirty-two cameras along to project areas to see how many pigs are moving in front of the cameras, what the group sizes were. We estimate numbers as well. When we started a project, we, we tried to figure out individuals coming past, but we gave up after the second day of looking through, <laughs> through cameras because there were so many pigs. When we do control methods, which is trapping, aerial culling and baiting, there's also cameras put on side and people report whether they've seen collared pigs or the number of pigs that have damaging crops, which is very obviously um, just after seeding time as well.
11: You're looking at pigs and you've been looking at them for a while. What's your feel for the numbers that are on the ground in that area around Geraldton? And I know that's sort of concentrating Northampton, Chapman Valley, Grenfell. but what are you seeing on the ground? Do you feel like you're in any way winning this battle against pigs?
10: Joe, I'd like to believe that we would really make a difference or a dent in the number of pigs present in our region but we still get very good numbers at trapside at baiting days even our aerial culling program and um, that we did in March this year we got more pigs than the the year before there's a few factors that come into play whether whether we get are getting better at what we're doing and get you know, more numbers. The aerial culling, we've done it, that was the fourth year that we've been doing it with the the same team. So I think they get to know the areas. Whether we're successful, I think we need some better information and data for that one. So I'm hoping we'll be able to get some more research funding for that. Um, A good example is that the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development flew a thermal camera in our area last week looking for feral pigs. They did find good mobs. So if we, if we get that data and we improve and continue with trapping, baiting, aerial culling, and then next year we'll fly that area again, together with the, the monitoring cameras on ground, I'm hoping that we would see a decline in feral pig numbers and activity.
2: Maike e. Janssen from the Northern Biosecurity Group, catching up with Joe Prendergast. And if you are wondering, those four annual aerial shoots she mentioned have taken out 4,222 pigs in total. And last year they got 1,304 pigs. 27 past 12. And pig numbers are on the rise in the 2J region, where they're coming into contact with people in semi-rural blocks. And 2J Shire Reserve Management Officer Greg Warburton wants you to report sightings of any pigs in the area. He thinks there are thousands of pigs in the 2J Shire where they use the Avon River as a very effective route for moving around the area.
12: We've always known the pigs are in the the DBCA land and uh, they encroach onto the... Broad acre farmland, but lately we've been getting reports of the pigs in the lifestyle, lifestyle subdivisions like the bush blocks and the hobby farms and uh, coming in closer to the town area as well.
11: And are people a bit worried about that?
12: Yes, there's a few residents that understandably are very uh, apprehensive about the presence of feral pigs in their backyard. We do hear reports from time to time of people being chased or attacked by pigs. I'm happy to say that it hasn't happened in 2J to my knowledge, but nonetheless, the, uh, the anxiety is there with some of our residents. Pigs can be extremely destructive, especially to cropping lands. And uh, from an environmental point of view, they represent one of the most serious threats to the natural environment in terms of a feral animal. They transmit disease, they cause all sorts of erosion and problems along our waterways. They out-compete native animals for resources. The list goes on and on. They uh, they really are a big problem.
11: What can you as a shire do about it?
12: Well, like all local governments, we, uh, we have limited capacity to tackle the problem uh, of the scale that we're talking about. So we're concentrating our efforts where the pigs are uh, impacting on our local residents and they're coming in close to where people live. So we're uh, identifying uh, hotspots, I suppose, for the one of a better word, where we can record the presence of pigs using uh, sensor cameras. And then uh, we can look at setting up uh, a trapping program to try and uh, reduce the number of pigs in these particular areas.
11: You've contracted someone to help you with some of that control work. But are you also getting the support that you need from, say, the state government in terms of helping with broader control programs. Obviously, you'll concentrate on the land that the Shire is responsible for, but there's a much bigger problem there that the Shire can't tackle on its own.
12: Yeah, very true. I suppose the two uh, departments that have responsibility for this problem uh, would be the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development and, of course, uh, DBCA. But as we know, uh, those departments have limited capacity as well. Uh, We've had good support, especially from... Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development so far, and um, DBCA have uh, an ongoing program in the uh, the national parks and reserve lands in terms of monitoring and controlling pigs. So we want to concentrate our efforts on the Shire-managed land and see if the two programs can't complement each other.
2: Greg Warburton from the Shire of 2J, speaking to Joe Prendergast. Half past 12. Garrett Mundy is here. Garrett, what's making the headlines? Good
1: afternoon, Belinda. In the news this afternoon, health officials in Sydney are warning people in that city to take the latest COVID-19 outbreak seriously. 16 new infections have been discovered in New South Wales. Authorities are still searching for the source of four of them. A raft of new restrictions will be introduced across Greater Sydney later today. Western Australia has closed its border with New South Wales in response to the state's growing COVID-19 outbreak. Following updated advice from the WA Chief Health Officer, New South Wales has been reclassified from very low risk to medium risk. Under the hard border arrangement, travel from New South Wales into WA will no longer be permitted except for exempt travellers. And federal Labor backbencher Joel Fitzgibbon says his party showed ideological craziness by voting down government spending on carbon capture and storage projects. A Greens motion against a plan to allow the Australian Renewable Energy Agency to invest in non-renewable technologies passed the Senate overnight with support of the ALP. Mr. Fitzgibbon has told nine radio his party only voted against the motion because it thought the bill would pass anyway. More news at one o'clock, Belinda.
2: Garrett, thank you for the updates. 29 to 1. You're part of the country hour with
0: Belinda getting on ABC Local Radio WA.
2: Still to come. Between now and that bulletin at one o'clock, you're off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. Tracy Kilner keeping an eye on things for you. And also looking at autonomous trucks. Big experiment held in the US just recently. Did you hear about that? That truck that took all those watermelons about 1,500 kilometres across America with no one at the steering wheel. You'll hear more about that in a moment. And are you sold on regenerative agriculture? If not, you might be interested in what some of the world's biggest food companies are up to because they're making commitments to regenerative farming.
5: These companies have probably armies behind them doing the assessments, looking at trends, looking at data. And when they come up with a conclusion and they've picked the words regenerative agriculture as a pathway towards um, reducing their emissions, I think we need to listen.
2: And you'll hear more on that shortly. Those big food companies are starting to define regenerative farming as well. And I know you're going to want to hear the detail of that. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Matt Boderhoven, how's it looking around the Southwest Land Division?
13: Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. Um, yeah, on Thursday, we have a high-pressure system move slowly over the wheat belt. Uh, partly cloudy conditions uh, through the South Land Division after a cold morning, a little bit of frost around. Um, showers still possible over southern districts and the adjacent Great Southern. Rainfall, though, fairly light, less than two millimetres. Then on Friday, uh, that high-pressure system will continue moving eastwards into the Eucla. The ridge will still extend through the West land division. Another cold morning through the central wheat belt. Showers about coastal parts of the southwest district and could see up to five millimetres sort of in between Bufferton and Augusta, uh, mainly near the coast. Uh, mostly sunny elsewhere through the southwest land division there on Friday. On Saturday, the high-pressure system will move into South Australia and a cold front will approach the west coast. Mostly sunny conditions on Saturday with mainly northerly winds. Another cold morning, couple of light showers near the southwest capes, uh, rainfall less than a millimetre. Then on Sunday, that strong cold front will move over the southwest land division, showers extending through western and central parts. Thunderstorms possible around western parts, uh, could be squally, could uh, be looking at a severe weather warning there on Sunday. Rainfall-wise, uh, through the southwest district, uh, rainfall range uh, getting up to 15, 25 millimetres. Uh, through the lower west, uh, 10 to 20 millimetres. Uh, Central west, 8 15. Western parts of the Great Southern and uh, western parts of the Central Wheat you uh, could see rainfall figures in the 4 to 10 millimetre rainfall range.
2: And moving to northern and eastern parts now, Matt.
13: Yeah, mostly sunny conditions over the next uh, from Thursday through to Saturday. Uh, winds up through the coastal parts of the uh, Pilbara and the Kimberley uh, will be strong at times uh, with a south-easterly surge. Uh, cold mornings uh, through central parts of the state, a uh, little bit of frost around. Then into Sunday, uh, showers will extend into. Western parts of the Gascoigne and the southwestern parts of the Gascoigne with that front. Uh, but the uh, sh- uh, remaining, remaining areas there on Sunday will be mostly sunny conditions. Um, strong winds up again the no- North Kimberley there on Sunday. And warnings this afternoon? Yeah, we've got to go, a GAR warning for the Esperance Coast and the Euclid Coast.
2: Great, thank you for the wrap, Matt. 25 to 1. Earlier in the hour, you heard about the waterlogging situation in parts of the Albany zone. And this text just through saying, waterlogging is a welcome alternative to the last three years. You can grow a lot more in mud than you can in dust. This winter, soil moisture and the water for the dams may have to last us for another three years. You can be part of the conversation too at four eight. 922604. Uh, speaking of the rain, Richard Hudson is here to look back at the last 24 hours.
0: Yeah, not much to get through in the northern and eastern forecast districts. In the Kimberley, Billaluna, six, and Leopold Downs had five. In the Pilbara region, Pardue with 25. And then you've got to go down to the south-west land division to get any more that are above five, at five or above. In the central west, a fair few places had one to three mils, but it was only Lancelin Defence that's worth reading out, with nine. In the lower west, some locations had one to four, but, the, again, the only one above that is Lancelin East, with 11. In the southwest, west Beadle up, 10. Greenbushes 31 mils over five days. Northcliffe, five. Walpole Forestry 9, Abrup 21, Yanmar 10. In the southern coastal region, Albany Airport 9, Dalyup Park 8, Erinair and Air and Esperance both had 6, Gardiner 8, Hopeton 5 to 7 mills, King River 9, Many Peaks 12, Mount Howick 12, Munglin up 7 to 9, Oakmarsh Farm 6, Pleasant Valley 5, Tamar 8, Tolina Downs 8 as well, The Duke 15, Warrajarra 11, Wellstead 29, In the central wheat belt, nothing over four mils. In the Great Southern, nothing over two mils.
2: That's it. Thank you for that, Richard. 23 to 1 on the ABC right across Western Australia. You are tuned to The Country Hour. And Richard, uh, you've been talking about regenerative farming today. And this is because some of the world's biggest food companies are now making commitments to regen ag. What's the story?
0: Yeah, these are big companies. In fact, they're massive. Um, Eileen Liu is manager of trade for Earth here in Western Australia. In other words, the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. But she's currently doing a Churchill Fellowship study. Churchill Fellowships are done through the Churchill Trust, which was set up by Winston Churchill. And the slogan is, learn globally, inspire locally. And as part of her fellowship, Eileen Liu will try to find out why the largest global food companies are getting involved in regenerative agriculture.
5: So I hope to um, travel to the US, Switzerland and France to talk to uh, major food companies, to learn from um, the USDA on the different consumer drivers and incentives um, and hope to bring that learnings back to Western Australia and Australia.
0: Why have you chosen those countries in particular?
5: Well, the United States has been on this journey for a little bit longer than we have regenerative agriculture practices, the term was actually coined in the United States in um, probably the late 70s or the early 80s. Switzerland is because of Nestle, which is the biggest big food company, um, one of the biggest ones to uh, make commitments to um, carbon neutrality and regenerative agriculture. And France, because of Danone, which is a um, yogurt company, um, also one of the first to make a commitment to regenerative agriculture.
0: That's the bit I'm intrigued with when you say they've made a commitment to regenerative agriculture. What sort of commitments are we talking about?
5: So maybe we'll start with um, General Mills. Um, General Mills is based in um, America and they were the one of the first to make a commitment to regenerative agriculture. So what they've said is they will work with farmers to transform their practices from um, whatever they're doing now into regenerative agriculture practices. And General Mills and Danone are both first ones. Um, In terms of General Mills, there are three pilot programs that they have implemented with oat farmers, wheat farmers, and dairy farmers. So these are farmers that supply to general mills um, in terms of their, um, their products. So they're working with these farmers to help them transition into regen ag practices and measuring the, uh, the efficacy, if you like, of those practices, including profitability, wh- which practices work, and giving them mentorship to help them through the journey. It's a three-year trial And I think this year is the second year. So next year, when I hope to travel, I will be able to um, visit some of these um, pilot trials and look at what the outcomes are. Now,
0: this is pretty significant, isn't it? Because the companies you're talking about are huge and they're global.
5: Yes, they are. I talk a lot about General Mills because they are one of the first and they made their commitment in March of 2019. Now, that was when I first started scoping out my Churchill fellowship project. But what was most exciting for me was once I received the fellowship, Nestle, which is the biggest food company in the entire world, made their um, commitment to carbon neutrality by 2050, by pointing to regenerative agriculture as one of the focus pathways to achieving that goal. That was followed closely by PepsiCo, which is the second largest food company in the entire world. So these three companies together, Nestle, PepsiCo and General Mills, their combined sales revenue in 2019 was worth more than 8% of Australia's GDP. That's huge.
0: That is huge. And you may have answered my next question because it's the obvious one. Why are they making these commitments to regenerative agriculture? Is it purely to meet their carbon targets?
5: That's what I'm hoping to find out. In General Mills, when I looked at their media statements and all the public information they've put out, when they first announced it, it was because they realised that their business, their long-term sustainability of their business relies on the health of the soil. And they're noticing that the health of the soil is um, degrading. So they thought, we need to do something about this, otherwise um, our business may not survive into the future. However, with Nestle and PepsiCo, I'm yet to find the reasons why. They're linking the regenerative agriculture pathway to carbon neutrality. So they must have seen something there. I mean, these are companies with a lot of resources to examine and assess all the data and trends in the entire world, whether it's consumer drivers or the linkages between these practices and climate change or emissions reductions they would probably have an army of people behind them doing that assessment.
0: From the research that you've done, can you answer the big question that farmers in Australia have, or particularly in Western Australia, and that is they, they always want to know the nitty-gritty detail. How are they, these companies defining regenerative agriculture, and is there some form of certification?
5: Yes, definitely. Um, General Mills, because they were the first, one of the first, they actually have a regenerative agriculture self-assessment tool that they publish on the website. There are six principles on it. Now, I cannot remember the actual details of it, but it includes things probably some of our farmers are already doing. No or reduced tillage, cover crops, use of livestock, integrating livestock into the system. So that's General Mills. Now, it remains to be seen what PepsiCo and Nestle comes up with. Um, but there is another company, Unilever, which is slightly bigger than General Mills. They have actually developed um, a regenerative agriculture implementation framework, which includes guidelines for the different subsectors of agriculture.
0: How close are the definitions, do you think, to organic? Are they getting to the point where they're insisting that their providers of these materials are not using chemicals?
5: I don't think so. I need to examine it a little bit closer. But There is one certification framework in America. That's the Regenerative Organic Alliance certification. I think it's called ROC. That's used by Patagonia Provisions. Now, that has the word organic in it. However, I believe um, a lot of the definition includes things like low to no input. So it doesn't say no, imp- no um, chemical input, we're talking about low chemical input. The other certification framework that's available currently in America is the Savory Institute um, land-to-market certification seal, if you like. That's used by one of the brands of General Mills, three of their products are branded with that. Now, I believe that does not include a requirement for no chemical input. Um, that certification process talks about outcomes, like improving biodiversity outcomes, improving soil health outcomes, and their metrics and KPIs that if you want to use that seal, um, you have to achieve and meet those outcomes based on those KPIs.
0: So when you do get a chance to do your travel and go to these countries and ask these questions, will you be coming back to Australia and writing a report of some sort or making recommendations? What's the process?
5: So the requirement of the Churchill scholarship is um, for us to come back and write a report within a year. But I'm not waiting for travel to actually do the report. So I'm trying to communicate as best as I can um, using any means I can like you know social media blogs um, which I'm hoping to start really soon um, when when the time permits but yeah it's a lot of communication now sharing what I'm learning now because the landscape has changed so much since I scoped out my project and I was hoping to travel last year Mm -hmm. so with such a you know fast changing landscape we cannot wait until I travel next year to come back and say hey here are my findings. I think the findings need to be communicated as I go. But if
0: you have some findings and you have some recommendations, is it likely the various states and the farming bodies and the farmers of Australia will listen?
5: Well, I hope so. It's always a hope. Um, I guess my intent is always to share um, what I learn and um, hopefully, it will be useful to some of those bodies, useful to some um, industry organisation or to governments. And hopefully, that would be used um, to improve our outcomes for our farmers.
0: It'll be interesting, nonetheless, when you find out what the largest global food companies are up to, which direction they're heading, it's worth listening, isn't it?
5: Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. Like I said, um, these companies have probably armies behind them doing the assessments, looking at trends, looking at data, and when they come up with a conclusion and they've picked the words regenerative agriculture as a pathway towards um, reducing their emissions, I think we need to listen. Now, the question that really fascinates me, it's always about the why. I want to know why they're making this commitment, if you like, and understanding the why I think will help us along in this journey.
0: You're right, because if that's tapping into what the consumer wants or the shareholder wants, we better listen.
5: Yes, that's right.
2: That's right. Eileen <laughs> Liu, Primary Industries Trade Manager for DeepHerd, talking to Richard Hudson about her Churchill Fellowship, which aims to find out why the largest global food companies are getting involved in regenerative agriculture. 13 to 1. Did you hear about this trial in the US? an autonomous trucking company has successfully transported watermelons about 1,500 kilometres across America without anyone at the steering wheel. Matt Brand takes a look.
5: At Too Simple, we make long haul freight transportation safer, more efficient and less expensive.
7: The NASDAQ-listed company Too Simple is celebrating a milestone for the company and for the fresh food sector after transporting watermelons from Arizona to Oklahoma City using an autonomous truck. Now, there were two humans in the truck for this trial, and they did take control of the vehicle at the front and back end of the journey, but for more than 1,500 kilometres, the truck was driving itself. According to the company's Jim Mullen, they're now gearing up for a trial which will have no humans in the cab at all.
8: Our core objective is to have L4 autonomous trucks, which is uh, taking the driver out and having the artificial intelligence actually operate uh, the truck. So th- there's going to be some situations where there's going to be a need for the driver, what we call the first and the final mile. That will probably always be in place uh, to some extent.
7: What do you think the benefits are
8: of autonomous trucks? Uh, safety, first and foremost. So uh, if you look at the, the data, the numbers in the United States, when it relates to accidents and fatalities involving large trucks, um, about 95% of those accidents are caused by human error. Uh, and so, our artificial intelligence doesn 't get tired it doesn 't get distracted it 's not impaired, uh, and so we 're going to vastly improve uh, the safety of driving large trucks. Uh, secondly, our system uh, is much more efficient when it comes to fuel efficiency and it 's about a ten percent increase in your in your miles per gallon, which is a big obviously a big improvement uh, and then lastly matt it's it 's here in the states we have we have a lack of, of, of drivers. Some estimates are there's uh, a lack of about, or shortage of about 60,000 truck drivers today, and that's expected to be over 100,000 next couple of years. So we're going to increase that safe, reliable capacity for our supply chain.
2: Jim Mullen, he's Chief Administrative Officer at Too Simple in America, speaking to Matt Bran. And the company's aiming to launch a fleet of these autonomous vehicles by 2024. More for you online. Just search Auto Truck Watermelons ABC. Auto Truck Watermelons ABC to read more. Ten to one. Well, to make autonomous vehicles work, you need sensors and at the forefront of this technology is an Australian company called Baraha. Frederico Colate is the CEO and he calls it LIDAR technology.
14: Think of it as a, as a video camera that allows the car to see around it. But beyond the camera, we can measure the distance to every pixel detected in this camera. So. Not only does the car see what's around it, but it can deeply understand its environment and it helps the car navigate, well, especially dense urban areas, but also tricky traffic situations like in highways. And that's why LiDAR is one of many sensors that self-driving cars use, but it is the primary sensor used for perception and um, the control of the vehicle.
7: And so can you tell us about some of the projects that now use your
14: technology? Yeah, absolutely. We're working across different industries. One of the main focuses has been uh, autonomous vehicles, light vehicles, you know, cars that you or I could buy. We're also working with companies developing self-driving truck technology. I cannot mention names at this point. And then in, in mining and industrial applications, I can actually mention a few names. We've been working for over two years with Hitachi Construction Machinery. It's a Japanese manufacturer of uh, heavy trucks and uh, front loaders for for mining, like uh, Caterpillar, but it's smaller. And more recently, they also invested in in Baraja. Uh, We're going to be putting our technology in in all of their vehicles for automated haulage systems in the next year or so. And these are going to directly benefit Australian mines. We we have already been working and testing uh, our technology in, in some of the harshest environments that Australia and the world has to offer. And we're very pleased with the results.
7: It's the mining industry that's really been at the forefront of, of autonomous vehicles, hasn't it?
14: Yeah, for quite a long time. Because the one thing that you have in a mine is you have complete control over that environment. You know, the, the, the owner of the mine in this case can say, Well, the mine is gonna be completely autonomous. That removes a big problem. When you have mixed autonomous and humans driving vehicles, that is very, very tricky. If you can say, hey, there's not going to be any human drivers, they're all going to be robots, then you can bet that the robots are going to obey the rules Mm. uh, and you can then synchronize all of them. So the task is easier than uh, automating vehicles for driving in urban conditions with pedestrians, with kids, with bicycles. And yes, that's the reason why mining has been at the forefront of autonomous vehicles they've been using our technology for for years now and there's several fully autonomous mines around the world most of them in australia
7: so news from america that an autonomous truck has successfully transported watermelons more than 1500 kilometers along major highways how significant is that for this industry that you're a part of
14: look i'm i'm Really pleased to to hear those news. I know that uh, the news came from too simple great company. I think it's very significant I think it's starting to offer some proof points that the technology is possible and it's practical uh, and it's delivering already results, especially for fresh produce the, the the key benefit is that you can get the fresh produce to the market sooner so you know the shelf the, the effective shelf life can be Longer, yeah. I think it's it's a great step in, in the right direction, a great proof point.
7: Do you so, think Australia will soon see driverless trucks on the highways? Yeah, great question.
14: On the highways, I think yes. I'm actually aware of a of a project uh, that we were working on pre COVID, which was to automate uh, a portion of highway of about fifty eight to sixty kilometers in Melbourne. And this was a pilot program where they were going to try to automate a portion of this highway to deliver or transport goods between a port and an inland port, which is kind of an inland warehouse facility. And this was going to be a trial for autonomous trucks. Uh, With COVID, it was put on hold, but I know that uh, Australia is already looking into some of these advanced technologies.
7: And for truck drivers listening to this, what would you say to them? Is their job safe?
14: I think so. Uh, as I understand, at, at least in America, I know that there's a massive shortage of, of truck drivers. And as I understand it as well, the technology can be welcome, especially for long haul tracking. When I I was seeing the, this uh this TV program, Outback Tracker. And uh, look, those jobs are not going to be automated anytime soon because these, these people are heroes crossing creeks and crossing the desert and stuff like that. Highways are a bit different and, and long haul highway uh, tracking is more akin to to automation, which means that the human trackers can still be used for the specialized pickup of the cargo and getting it, say, to, to the edge of the city or, or to the suburban area or the entryway to the, to the highway. And then the autonomous system takes over that long haul boring highway. Then on the other side, as you're gonna enter the the urban center, another hand over to a human driver. So I think it, there's a lot of room for collaboration where the machine performs at, at its best and where the human performs at its best, where, where it's adding value. Not when it's just, hey, go straight for another 200 kilometers and make sure that you don't fall asleep, right? So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of space for collaboration, but certainly it's going to be different.
2: Frederico Colate, the CEO and founder of the Australian tech company Baraha, speaking to Matt Brand about autonomous vehicles and its LIDAR technology. Three minutes to one to the markets to Catanning, where 3,791 sheep and lambs were penned for sale today. That's 3,380 down on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner, what impact did that lower yarding have on the prices today? Hi Belinda. Yeah, a mixed quality yarding
15: with all prime lines selling to higher values while the lesser quality store lines fluctuated with demand. Heavy lambs topped at 210 while heavy ewes equaled at 210. Most regular buyers are in attendance with some absent due to numbers or processing facility closed for their annual maintenance. Very lightweight lambs under 12 kilos sold from 36 to $80, depending on quality. Air freight weights under 16 kilos sold from 94 to $129. The heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight lambs made from 123 to 162. Lighter trade weights went from 140 to 163, while the heavier trade weights made from 150 to 184. Heavyweight lamb sold from 170 to 190 and the extra heavies, $210 a head. Young Merino ewes eased on quality, making from $97 for lightweights to 184 for heavyweight Dorper ewes. Light store ewes sold from 89 to $110, medium weight and good boning ewes under dollars weighing under 30 kilos, sold from $124 to $180 a head. Limited numbers of heavyweight ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight made from $192 to $210 a head. Heavy mature weathers sold for $221, while young hogget weathers returned $74 to $145 for lightweights and the heavier lines to processes made from $149 to $170 a head. A large yarding of mature rams saw prices ease again, selling from $28 to $125, while the ram lambs made from $127 for lightweights up to $187 for heavyweights and a better quality yarding. This has been Tracey Keona for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service.
2: Tracey, thank you for that. And earlier in the hour, you heard how some of the biggest food companies in the world uh, PepsiCo, Nestle, just to name two, are making commitments to regenerative farming. And in response to that, Ron in Williams says, if we're interested in healthy food, should we really listen to multinational food companies, highly processed food that has travelled thousands of kilometres I'd say these companies and their marketing departments have done far more damage to human health than anything that happens at the farm level. And this too, don't you think we're all involved in conducting regenerative agriculture? We just all don't give it a fancy label. The alternative, terminal agriculture, doesn't sound like a great business plan and we're probably all just here trying to make profitable and sustainable farm businesses. What is so wrong with that? Why do we have to go the fancy label to make it socially licensed? Great to get your feedback on Regen Ag today. And we'll do it all again tomorrow, shall we? On ABC, it is time for the news, one o'clock.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.